Hi everyone, welcome to the Inspirited Politics podcast, focused on exploring and inspiring innovation in politics. My name is Sitara Edward and I'm the founder of Inspirited Politics. In this series, we talk about unleashing the potential in politics to create a positive impact on our society for the long term. I speak to guests from inside and outside the political arena, asking them to shine their light on conscious innovation in politics. Welcome. Today I am speaking to Harcourt Kleinfelder and I am at his house in Steenwijkerwald. Harcourt dedicated his life to bring nonviolent actions into practice, to create a world of righteousness for all. He is well known for his work as press officer of Dr. Martin Luther King, taping his speeches and marching from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. Ever since, he has continued to pursue Dr. King's dream. He also took on an active role in refugee centers and camps, most recently in Lesbos, and he still gives lectures and dialogue trainings at schools. His life story has been captured in his biography, The Life of Peace Apostle Harcourt Kleinfelder. This summer, I met Harcourt and his wife Annalise for the first time, and I was very happy to meet two very hospitable, open-minded people with a lovely twinkle in their eyes and a warm smile. So I'm very happy to be here again. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me to be able to speak. I'm trying to get used to saying Harcourt. (laughs) I feel like saying Mr. Kleinfeld, but thank you very much. Just imagine you are invited to the next UN General Assembly, where you can address all 193 nations. What would be the topic you choose to speak on? Of course, the United Nations has been the number one factor in preventing wars. So it is a very good opportunity to talk. And Dr. King, of course, received the Nobel Peace Prize. And Dr. King said that we have to live together as brothers and sisters or perish as fools. So this is a very important moment to be able to speak to the organization that has been bringing together all of God's children to to try to work to solve conflicts without the use of violence. Dr. King said that war, racism, and poverty are intrinsically linked. So today I would like to talk to you about the situation where we're sitting, where we're now in, wherein there is a worldwide epidemic from the coronavirus. We are apart physically, but we're united in spirit. Now is the time to talk about converting from an economy of death to an economy of life. An economy of life would mean that we would be spending more money to save lives, like we're now working with a a worldwide effort to try to save lives with the coronavirus. And let's see what international cooperation can bring about. As we go back, we need to move not to the old 
economy of death where the majority of money is going for national defense. We move to need to work for international health and international work to prevent conflicts becoming into violent wars. In order to do this, we need to see and talk about a defense for all people, not just the people in your particular class, race, nation, ethnic group, but to see that the only form of defense is a form wherein the lives of other people's children are seen as being just as important as the lives of your own family, of your own group. So any kind of security has to be based on universal security for everybody and not just some people. So we're living in a time where defense has been built upon fear. Our whole systems have been built upon fear. We have reached the people have in the past used fear as a way of scaring other people off, hopefully. But the problem is, if they start becoming violent, then the normal responses become even more violent. So we're living now with stockpiles, mountains high of hand grenades in the form of atomic weaponry, that if we should ever use it, it would have the same effect of dueling with hand grenades. So we need to get out of that mentality. If somebody's got a gun and you don't have a gun, there are some judo techniques, but if you're more than the, the distance we have to keep with corona, they're not going to help you. The only way you can stop the bullet coming out of the gun is to appeal to the person's conscience. And that's the key. Thank you. So I hear you speak of an economy of life, nonviolence, not one of fear, wherein also we appeal to people's conscience. Um, I know you have dedicated your life to bringing nonviolent action um, into practice, and you just spoke to us on why you think that is so effective. Yet also, there are people who have protested nonviolently for a long time, and people around them say they're not achieving anything. What would you say to them? The slogan from the movement was, freedom is a constant struggle. The Montgomery bus boycott that began when Rosa Parks refused to give her seat to a white man in the days of segregation the Montgomery bus boycott went on for over a year before it ended segregation in Montgomery alone. And then there were the freedom rides with interstate buses, and much violence occurred, and many lives were, were lost. So the struggle was not, not achieved overnight. There was the March on Washington, where Dr. King made his famous speech, I Have a Dream of an all-inclusive society. And Dr. King said of that march, it didn't directly change Congress, but it did change the people who went to the march. And so they began to act differently when they went back home. So 
progress is not a linear line. It is a, as the sea, it's a evolving way as the tide comes in and goes out. So, in some aspects, we have made fantastic progress, and others, we have made less progress. Nobody thought when I marched in Selma, Alabama for the right and practice for the Afro-Americans who had, from off the end of the Civil War, the right to vote, but in practice not, that we'd ever see the day that we would have uh, a black president. I voted for him not because of the color of his skin, because of the content of his character. In many areas, we have seen fantastic progress. In other areas, less. So it's like if you throw three stones into a, a pond. The waves hit the shore at another time and another place. So the level of social progress as that wave has hit in different places and the level that led to the protest from police brutality, uh, what we were fighting there in the South, that has reached the shores of, of Europe and other places in the world with the protest for Black Lives Matter. At the same time, I, would not, I did not think in the time of Barack Obama that I would be hearing the same slogans from the racist people on the streets and the racist governors of the states in the Deep South would be coming out of Washington. So that other wave is also here, and here in Holland, I don't have to tell you, there are groups that are doing all to drive people apart, the opposite of everything that Dr. King wanted in his dream. The nightmare is also reached the shores of Europe as well. So now is the time to work to keep going and make a new world based upon that dream of inclusiveness and neat exclusiveness. Okay, so thank you. I hear you say that we must be patient. Progress does not come overnight. And maybe, you know, that's a good invitation for um, the current generation, my own generation, because we like things to go quickly. <laughs> so I'm happy that you remind us that also in the 60s, some changes took a long time and you need to continue to do what you believe in in order to have the um, goal attained along the way. What I love to hear you say just now is you said, Dr. King said, we're not going to change Congress, but we are going to change the hearts of the people who came to the march. What is needed to change Congress? Because uh, we are trying to change the political arena as well. So how can we appeal to the political arena with everything that's happening? The demonstrations were the last step in negotiation for trying to get jobs. And at first you would talk with the people in the, in the company to get people placed on all levels in the, in the company and not just integrate the lowest levels. 
if that didn't go down, then we'd have a boycott or we'd have demonstrations. So demonstrations were were the top of an iceberg where there had been a whole lot of groundwork done before the time. But Dr. King said of the demonstrations, what you did was you brought the evil before the eyes of the public so they, their conscience would be moved and they would put pressure on political candidates, regardless of parties, to get the necessary changes to end the evils that were now visible. Um, there is another problem, though, at the moment, and that's that with all the technology and possibilities, there is also the spreading of a lot of fake news. And it's hard for people to distinguish between uh, fact and fiction. What's your view on that? It's important to teach people to learn from themselves, to be, try to be able to find out for themselves what is fact and what is fiction. Now, when I worked for Dr. King, we had all kind of newspapers, not only in America, we even had the newspaper, The Fiery Cross from the Ku Klux Klan, but we also had the Peking Journal and things like Chairman Mao is swimming in the Yellow River. And we had the newspapers from South Africa. And then you discover, how do you find out what is censored? The only way you can do that is to have other sources. The BBC is famous because they try to have a neutral standpoint. That's one way to get a balance. The other way to do it is what we is to if you want to balance a seesaw, you can put a block in the middle. But you can also put a block on the on the one end and a block on the other extremes. Or you can put blocks in between. Now the Dutch broadcasting system where every party, political party, has equal free time on television makes a seesaw with all these different blocks. So if you take the time to listen, you can find out what you're not hearing and not just what one side or the other says. And one of the problems with the situation that we now have is algorithms that make it so that people get the news that they want to hear, so you get an inbred group of intellectual men and people and they say the other group is all fake news. The only way to do it is to open up and get some all the information from as many sources as possible. You can put them down and see if it's what patterns in it, like a jigsaw puzzle. So this is the, the, this is the, the problem. All the, the techniques can be used for good or for evil. And propaganda of trying to get the truth out. So, so this, is, this is why it is important in our, in our educational system. You teach people to think for themselves and not just be a clone of other people's ideas. Yeah, so we are all responsible for finding diverse information before we have any conclusions. Because knowing is the first step. And Jesus said, love your enemies. 
How can you say you love anybody if you don't even know them? So whether you were talking about making judgments, then you first have to know not only the information, as I say, with a news, but with people. So at the moment you make judgments about our, this is the way I think these people are, then you have the tendency to, to stereotype them. If you get to know them personally, that's the first step in being able to know that people aren't just the way other people think they are. So the first thing is to know people. Now, nonviolence is from Dr. King based on neat the absence of violence, of neat, uh, you shall not kill. But it's based upon love. Love not only for your friends, all our defenses are built for their security or our security, but we need to know the so-called opponent or enemy. Dr. King said, I'm glad Jesus said, love your enemy, not like your enemy. You don't have to like a person to be able to be concerned about the person's welfare, his health, what is important to him. You don't have to like the way he is, how he acts, but you can be concerned that he has enough to eat, to drink, clothing. So it's also, Dr. King said, it's to your advantage to love your enemy. He says, your enemy will tell you things about you that your best friend will or doesn't, don't see. He said, even the Ku Klux Klan says things about me that is true. Not everything they say, of course, but I can learn from that because those things they will tell me that my friends don't, even my own family don't see. So the nonviolence is based upon the idea, as Dr. King said, we have a power that is more powerful than an atomic bomb. An atomic bomb can only destroy. Only love can change an enemy into a friend. I love that. <laughs> and it reminds me of uh, the quote in your book that says, the heart of real nonviolence is the belief that each person is an indispensable part of the cosmos and the strongest power in the universe is love. I think that really summarizes also what Dr. King taught on that um, topic. What I would also like to speak to you about is you've spoken a lot about Dr. King's work. And yet I also know that you have done a lot of work concerning dialogues as well. And you've spoken about it very indirectly in a lot of um, ways. Um, yet it's also at the heart of the work we do with Inspirited Politics. Uh, what's the power behind dialogue for you? Dialogue is another way of bringing people together by trying to find what is common, what lies behind of people's standpoints. So if in dialogue sessions, 
you tell people this is important because I feel this way about it, um, and other people tell the same, then you can get together and see people and try to get to see what is common behind it. Uh, there is a famous story in Getting to Yes, one of the popularized mediation. And that was a story of uh, the two factories wanted this orange grove. And it would be a question of what, what, what one or the other would normally get the thing, or they could split it in 50-50. But then they started to talk and then asked, why do you want the oranges? And the one guy says, well, we want the fruit from the oranges because we want to sell that. And the other guy says, well, we want the, sh the peels of the oranges because we make medicine from it. And so they could both be able to use the same oranges. Now, that's an example of how dialogue on the one level works. The other way the dialogue training we did with Dr. King and the same principle was to go back and talk about the experiences you had and how you felt about them as a child. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to basic sensory perceptions, that's something everybody has with everybody in the whole world. The problem is, as you grow older, you begin, you were taught to, to see things otherwise. There's a beautiful song in South Pacific, uh, which is from the musical from uh, Rogers and Hammerstein in the 50s, in a segregated world, and he's talking about a romance between a Polynesian and American soldier. You couldn't talk about that in in the terms of what was going on in the deep south, but that's the same principle. And the one guy is saying the prejudice is, is inherited. And the other says, no, you have to be carefully taught to hate. Carefully taught. So what happened with, with people, if you go back to childhood, in the south, Black kids played on the streets with white kids. They often had the rich people, they had black nannies, and sometimes the relationship was really closer to the nanny than to the physical mother. And when they get to be teenagers, they said, you have to be apart. So stories of, of joy is something that brings people together. It's also is true of things that are sorrowful, but bitterness drives people apart. So if you start talking about that, then you can start talking about what is freedom. And then you can talk about what is at that moment freedom from the laws that keep people apart. Now, in Yugoslavia, we would bring people together and the one in small groups and the one would say, my um, daughter was raped by a Serb. Mm. And the other one would say, and my son was killed by a Croat. And they could share the tears of the loss of their children. And they came out to the conclusion, 
how horrible war is. That's what we need to stop, not the other group. Now, so this is how dialogues works. And that's why it is, it's a way of getting to see the commonality of everybody, because everybody has the same good eigenskop and, and select. So what you do, you try to, to increase the, the good side. There's a famous story of two wolves fighting, the two wolves inside of you. Mm. And who will win? Depends upon which one you feed. No, that's the base of of nonviolence, and that's what we need to do to go into an economy of life to feed the good wolf and eat the bad one. Thank you. Such wisdom from within. A trainer of mine many, many years ago told me, if you want, you can find something you have in common with everybody you meet. You just need to be willing to find that common ground, even if you think it's your enemy. So I think there's a beautiful invitation for all of us there in trying to find that common ground we have with the other person in going forward. Dr. King saw people not for what they were or not just what they are now, but what they could be in the future and try to inspire you to try to reach that. So that's the key to this. And what I like about what you said there is that that's also about finding the potential in people and seeing it and unleashing it as well, which is very much in line with our purpose as well. When I started in spirited politics, one of the first crazy ideas that came to mind was that what would happen if all political meetings would start with a moment of stillness? We've spoken about that together as well, about the power of silence, um, inviting people to align their thoughts with their gut emotions and their inner wisdom. What would be your wildest dream for the field of politics? I would like to read my dream for the future. Out of the spirit of love, I will continue to work with the help of God and others to make the dream a worldwide reality. I hope that you will join me so that we can speed up the day when all over the globe we will be able to sing, We Have Overcome. We will be able to sing, we have overcome, when billions will be given for the prevention of war in place of weapons. And there will be millions of nonviolent peace workers in place of soldiers with guns on their backs. When setting up field hospitals takes precedence over dropping bombs, and the borders of all lands are open to all. That our governments will be more concerned about the safety of people above the ground than the revenue under the ground. And trade agreements will be made to fill the bellies of the poor and not the wallets of the rich. 
Pharmaceutical companies will seek how they can enhance the health of the poorest instead of the stockholders. Judicial systems will be aimed more at the restoration of relationships and less at the punishment of offenders. Freedom of press and art is axiomatic and taken for granted. People will vote for political parties who want to include all instead of excluding many. And the development of all people, regardless of their sex, race, or origin, is promoted instead of being hindered by the abuse of religions and ideology. And we will finally be able to sing We Have Overcome when people treat each other with respect and in love. And then nations will never again go to war, never prepare battle again. And everyone will live in peace among their own vineyards and fig trees. And nobody will make them afraid. And I think you just answered that beautifully. (laughs) Thank you very much for your time and wisdom today. I am very honored to have spoken to you again. And uh, I hope our audience enjoyed our conversation today. For any more information, I would please refer everyone to our website, inspiritedpolitics.com. And thank you very much.